Welcome to the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Conversely, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing really good. How about you, Trevor? You having a good morning so far? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm having a really good morning. I've been looking forward to recording with you for a while because sometimes we, we keep in touch a little bit better between recording sessions. It's not like we weren't talking or keeping in touch, but you had kind of a biggie, you know, big work thing that you were working mm. on. And I didn't want to bother you. And, you know, I know you were, even when you weren't doing that, you know, you, you need to be doing things with family. So we haven't talked as much as we might normally between episodes. It's nice to see you again. I know. You too. I missed you. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Like you said, it's been one of those little stretches that we talk about sometimes where life has a way of interfering and uh, haven't been quite as available recently. Haven't had as much time to do the stuff that I really you know, enjoy, but yeah, luckily yeah. that period's over and I'm back. And <laughs> Feeling yeah, better than ever. <laughs> much better, much better. Yeah. So it's nice to see you. Well, one of the things that you did, I've kind of jokingly said on this work, um, uh, you know, thing that you had was you upgraded podcast co-host, <laughs> Paul. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You've posted on Twitter, mm-hmm. so I'm assuming you're okay with people knowing just in general what, yeah. what happened. No, absolutely. Well, first of all, definitely not. I would never do that. Um, But yeah, so I had a friend who I worked with years ago, and he kind of was telling me, he he was another book lover like we are, and he would tell me, he's about 10 years older than me, that, you know, as you go through your work life, you have to find ways to make work, you know, a passion or at least something that you can be excited about. And so Mm -hmm. I, one of the things I get to do with my job is I get to choose keynote speakers for this big conference we have every year. And so, you know, I've, I've been able to meet some pretty cool people over the years, but usually it's like political people or, you know, doctors or or stuff like that. And this year I was able to swing it to get Mr. LeVar Burton to join us for our keynote speaker, which was (laughs) amazing. You know, like, like many people maybe on this, on this uh, podcast listening I grew up watching, you know, reading Rainbow and as an early book lover, he was always a huge influence. So yeah, to be able to chat with him a little bit and meet him in person was an absolute dream come true. So yeah, it was really fun. (laughs) And for anybody who's worried, he is just as charming and kind in real life as he appeared to be on screen, which was a huge relief to me. And how did he have any questions about the Mooks and the Gripes podcast? I mean, how much did you have to like, Lavar, yeah. calm down? I'm we're here to, to talk about you and your experiences. Exactly. I had to fend him off, and you know, you know, <laughs> I'm very happy with Trevor as a co-host. There's no <laughs> openings at this time. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really cool. He uh, he was just really an interesting guy, and of course, the audience loved him. It, it was really interesting to see. The audience was divided and he even mentioned like when people come up to him in public, he said nine times out of 10, he can figure out if they're coming to him as a Roots fan, as a Star Trek fan (laughs) or a Reading Rainbow fan. And so at one point we kind of asked the audience and it was, you know, a little light on Roots, but there were some people like, you know, basically, what what do you think of when you think of LeVar Burton? And some people said Roots, Um, quite a few, of course, said Star Trek, but I'm happy to report that far and away the majority said it was all about reading rainbow so hmm. yeah well, that's that's interesting I, I would have guessed the other mm-hmm. even though i'll admit the reading rainbow music plays through my head like when when you first sent me like a little screenshot of you guys chatting over zoom mm-hmm. the that song just went right through my head it i know didn't, didn't really have much to do with star trek even though i always i watched that grew up watching that and certainly mm-hmm. you know would think of that immediately after but right yeah no but it was really fun and so 
despite all the stress of the last couple of weeks, that was definitely one of the little, not a little, that was definitely a big highlight for me. So, well, that's awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Well, in some other preliminaries, um, we, we released a newsletter, our first newsletter, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we released our, you know, last episode on our dustiest books. And that was kind of a test because I never have really thought, oh, we need to get a newsletter. We need to do all these things that everybody does. But the reason that I started one was as an easier way for us to get show notes to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's in the, it comes to your email and it has some of our other thoughts. You know, we can put links to the videos or links to Twitter uh, posts or, you know, we can put feedback in there. We can put polls and links to things like that in the same spot. And the other thing that I thought was really cool is you listeners can comment on those posts, like them, do whatever you want to on those. It's kind of like a little blog that comes straight to your inbox. I don't know all the ways that it works. It's a Substack one. It's a free one. You know, I know Substack sometimes when I hear that, I think, oh, they're, they're no, that's the that's the one you pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you can set up ones that are free and that's what we've done. And um, so I thought that might be an easier way for people to get an idea of just various things that we're thinking of and, uh, you know, announcements about shows that are upcoming, but also the show notes will be there. Yeah. <laughs> no, nice I really appreciate bonus. you doing that. It, it's it peeking around in it. It looks great. And I think, like you said, we can only continue to experiment and have fun and grow it and maybe get feedback and all kinds of stuff. So that's another mm-hmm. exciting way that we can connect with people. And I do appreciate everybody who signed up. We got quite a few signups right at, you know, in the first 24 hours. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that was kind of fun, but yeah, please, you know, reach out on there if you want to, it's not, obligatory. Um, but I thought that was really neat. You don't have to go and follow us on Twitter um, or DM. You know, here's the thing that's hard about Twitter. I love Twitter. And I hope you do follow us on Twitter and that we follow you and we can, you know, kind of chat back and forth. But if you and I are chatting on Twitter and someone doesn't see it, they never, you know, how do you find that? Yeah. But if you're, if we're talking back and forth on some of these um, posts, these Substack posts that come right to your email, you Whenever you want to, you can go back and find that or see it, see what people are saying. I don't necessarily expect this to be a game changer and, you know, change the way that we do things or maybe be the most, you know, engaging part of it all. I think we get quite a bit on Instagram and on Twitter, but Mm -hmm. um, it is an option out there and we'll be paying attention. So if you haven't signed up yet, we'll have links to it in the the show notes. (laughs) In the newsletter. <laughs> no. All right. Um, if you haven't signed up yet, let me know and, and I'll try and figure out a way to help you get to that. But we'll put a little thing, maybe even in the description of the podcast. That's a good idea. Um, you know, so that on your podcast app, whatever, you, wherever you're listening to this, it should be in the description. You can just go and click on that and that'll open it all up for you. So, yeah, that should it. be that should be a fun one. And speaking of our last episode on Dusty Books, um, we had some fun conversations and some fun um, feedback on that. Uh, I don't know if you if you remember or saw as many of these again. You were you were quite busy, but for example, I really liked the perspective that Rowan Mateson uh, sent on. I think it was on my Instagram. You know, we're talking about Dusty Books, and do you feel any guilt for it? And she goes, "I just like to think of them as ripening there." 
Which I like I that. They're ripening for the right time. <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to look at it. And uh, Wendy Whitten posted to, I heard a friend defend the number of unread books he's had by saying, if I'd read them all, it would be a collection. But this is my library. <laughs> and I love that. I do too. I mean, I, I do have a collection and I think that's a fine way to look at it as well. But yeah. There's no need to feel guilt, folks. No, I really like that, actually, because it's not, I mean, it can be, but it's not necessarily like it's a trophy case of things you've accomplished. It's, there's some that you've read and loved and other ones that are just sitting there waiting for you. That's a really good way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And it was fun, too, to hear others who were saying, oh, this is how long it's been since I've owned this book. I think someone put that they owned uh, War and Peace since 1977. (laughs) And John Self said something like, was it even set that far back in the past? <laughs> so I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Any that come to mind to you or any thoughts on the Dustiest Books podcast as you've, uh, you know, as it's been out now for a week or two? Yeah, nothing specific. I was going to mention that one that you, that interaction you just mentioned with John Self. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and and it was just interesting. There were so many people like kind of, I saw a lot that came that they said they'd had at least since the early 2000s. And then there were a few that crept into the 90s. But I think, yeah, what, what was that, 1978? That might be the winner so far. But if mm-hmm. anybody has one that they've been holding on to longer, I'd love to uh, hear about it. But it's funny, I have some that my grandpa, he was uh, an English professor and or an English high school teacher, excuse me. And he has passed along some books to me that are very, very old, too. So it's it's always interesting when like they were on his shelf forever and now they're on my shelf forever. It's fun. <laughs> that is cool. All right. Well, everybody's always welcome again to send us feedback, send us your thoughts on on episodes. I I just love hearing it. So thanks so much for that. I do too. And I think most people know this, but even if you're listening to an episode that's from six months back or longer, we still love to hear feedback. You don't need to ever worry that it needs to be one of the more recent ones. I I love hearing, you know, just remembering some of the other episodes we've had and hearing feedback on those Mm -hmm. as well. Well, we have a few new Patreon supporters that I want to, to thank publicly on here (laughs) Uh, and one of two of these i may have already mentioned on a past episode but because i wasn't sure i don't want to miss you um debbie baker um signed up for the five dollar a month thank you so much debbie it it's it just it just it really does help it really does this is you know we do put out money for the show just for the the hosting and and the various services that we subscribe to to get it out there and we're going to do that anyway but it it's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And it'll, you know, we, we plan on using the money to come back into the show in every way, you know, um, you know, getting books for giveaways, you know, things like that. And, you know, someday Paul and I totally expect to be able to retire and oh, do course. this for a living. So uh, <laughs> every dollar helps. Is... That's right. Just a couple more Patreons away. That's all we are. <laughs> um, Bill Martini signed up at $10 a month. Thanks, Bill. And I, I don't think it was just because he won the Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont giveaway because <laughs> he had signed up. I didn't real I didn't really make the connection, but he had signed up prior to that. Oh, that cool. may have been karma. It wasn't. It wasn't us. We weren't like right. oh, we got to get him a book now because we send a book at that level anyway. Um, mm. So one way or another, Bill was getting some books from us, yeah. and that was a, a good way to you know to kind of make his entrance and, and yeah, come in thank you, Bill, and make get a win. <laughs> uh, Sigrun Hodney, she's a great uh, painter and and uh, and reader, and and uh, she signed up for thirty 
N O K. I looked it up. It, okay. This is a this is a, just a foreign currency, and I and I can't remember. I apologize. I, I should have made sure that I looked, but I think it's a, the Norwegian um, currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked up to kind of what that meant, and that I don't remember either. <laughs> but thank you so much, Sigrun. Um, we've been in touch a little bit on Patreon because we can also chat back and forth, and it's it's been just delightful with all of you. Uh, Christine Boatman signed up at $5 a month. Um, and Karen O signed up at $1 a month a week ago, both of those. So again, thanks so much. Yeah. Every little bit is just heartening. It's, it's fun. But when we have these, you know, I do want to thank Patreon supporters, but I don't want anybody to feel like that's a requirement or something we expect or anticipate. You know, we just love doing this and love engaging with you. And yes, this means a lot and is helpful. But we know that everybody's earning good, hard money and have things to do with it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if you have the ability and, and the wish to, to support us that way, we appreciate it. Um, but if you can't or don't, that's also fine. We absolutely we love engaging with you in any way possible. No, like we always say, and I know we repeat ourselves, but it's absolutely true. I mean, getting a note, comment from somebody, a like, a retweet, all that stuff means a lot. So whatever way you support us, we really appreciate it. Yeah, that's true. Now, because we do want to give back a little bit to the Patreon community, uh, we actually released a bonus episode last week, uh, which was kind of a chatty catch-up. Mm-hmm. And I know Dorian said that it's nice to have more Trevor and Paul. I'm not sure if everybody feels that way, but thank you, Dorian. <laughs> and and that's kind of what it is. Uh, we're going to try to mix those up. We're going to you know, our goal is to do one of those a month. And at any level that you are a Patreon supporter, um, you're going to get those. There's no like you have to subscribe for this much a month in order to get that bonus episode. It's just, you know, that a dollar a month gets you gets you all of that. You also get our episodes a little bit early. They come out on Tuesdays on Patreon, whereas they come out Thursdays everywhere else. Um, that's a, and that's a big deal, you know, just get, right. get it sooner. <laughs> you be a trendsetter. But, you can be talking about stuff before anybody else even. <laughs> but, but when it comes to the bonus episodes, uh, we're not planning on having that be a substitute or, you know, using up ideas of things that we're no. working on for the regular show. So don't feel, um, deprived or like we're, we're trying to make this a paid thing. Uh, we just really want to give back to the Patreon community in, in some different ways um, to, sh- to show our things, but in no way to take away from what we'd be doing here at, regularly. So any other thoughts on any of that, Paul? I don't think so. Just again, thanks to everybody. It's so exciting. I, I never even dreamed that we would have so many people, you know, weighing in and enjoying this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's been so much fun and I look forward to continuing to do it. It's great. All right. And today we have a kind of a two-parter episode um, we are going to start by talking about summer reading, some of our own 2022 summer reading plans or you know thoughts on what's coming up. We are also, this is a little bit scary, but should be fun, going to introduce the Mooks and the Gripes Summer Book Club. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do that here in a few minutes. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to follow up on our most recent assigned reading from our Short Books of Fiction episode and chat for a little bit about aphasia um, by Mauro Javier um, Cardenas and also about uh, Enemonde by Jean Giono. Giono. 
Those are the two books that we'll be talking about at the end of the episode. But we're going to start with summer reading. And I feel like there should be some nice, breezy summer music playing in the background right now to introduce no. this segment. I'll, I'll do some work to see if I can get that in there. <laughs> I like it. Uh, but yes, it is uh, the, It is Memorial Day weekend for Paul and me. It's Saturday, uh, May 28th. Memorial Day is on Monday. And my kid's last day of school was yesterday. I don't know if that's the same where you're at, Paul, or if they have a little bit longer. No, they finished up just a couple days ago, actually. So yeah, they're they're on summer break. It's it's yeah. time. So it's not quite officially summer by the calendar, but it is summertime for you know summer break. Summer summer reading is coming up. In fact, I signed the kids up for the the book it for my youngest to the book it summer reading program. I didn't even know they did that still. Oh, cool. But do you did you ever do the book it as a kid? I don't. Do you know I what did. I'm talking about? I, I've heard about it, yeah, but I don't, I don't the, think I ever did it. It's the Pizza Hut uh, reading oh. thing. Actually, yeah, so, I did. I didn't know that's what it's called. I did do that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. As a kid, I loved going and getting my personal pan pizza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's still like right now. I'm like, that's exactly what I want today. I know, that Even though good. it does not taste the same as when I was a kid. Right, um, right. <laughs> yeah, but, your taste may have changed a little over the years, but it tastes like nostalgia. Yes, it tastes like reading. It tastes like <laughs> the book, it, the little pins that you'd get, the book it pins. Yes, um, so I signed up the two youngest for that, and they start on June 1st to be able to, you know, record their reading so they can, they can eventually get their personal pan pizza. And... I feel like they should be paying us right now, the Pizza Hut. But I <laughs> doubt right. they're getting. I doubt they're getting. You know, but anyway. <laughs> um, so summer reading. You know, I, I what what comes to mind when 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 the words summer reading are uttered, Paul? What yeah. do you what do you think of? I definitely do go back to childhood first, and, and that program, or often the libraries will have you know like a summer reading program for mm-hmm. kids to sign up for, where if you read a certain number of books over the course of the summer, you get some prizes or some acknowledgement. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's definitely one thing I go to. Personally, I don't necessarily feel myself drawn to a particular type of book in the summer. I was trying to think if there was like, did my reading taste change at all? And for me, I don't think that's the case. I'm not a big beach book guy or a Mm -hmm. blockbuster movie kind of guy you know like for the summer I don't focus on that type of thing but I really have some strong summer reading memories that I thought I might oh yeah share you know so when my wife and I were first dating and first married we'd go every summer to some cabins that are up in the Colorado mountains and we'd stay for you know maybe like a long weekend or maybe a week at the most and Mm -hmm. they weren't super rustic but they were fairly rustic you know there wasn't like obviously TV or anything like that. And so it was just this nice time to kind of unplug and just be up there. And I remember sitting out on the porch in front and looking out at the lake in front of me and reading, for example, Lonesome Dove, which as we've mentioned before, oh, is one of my, it's been a while best. since you've mentioned it. I know I'm glad it came I up. I thought everybody was probably missing me talking about it. I was, I thought about it like a week or two ago. I thought Paul hasn't brought up Lonesome Dove for a little yes. while. What, what? Well, and go. I did, that was not me trying to mock. I genuinely was like, huh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, that was where I read it. And it was such a wonderful experience just having that time, you know, where you, it was before kids and we were, like I said, unplugged and just being up there and you could just immerse yourself in that that world. Um, mm-hmm. And then I also remember it was a while ago. So we, we've talked about Robert Jordan and his giant fantasy novels. I remember reading <laughs> one of those at those cabins as well. And one other one that I remember reading there was there's a nonfiction book called Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose, which is a really mm-hmm. fascinating look at the Lewis and Clark expedition. And I remember some very strong memories associated with that time there too. Um, 
And then one other thing that just comes to mind a lot for me is during the summer, these are more recent, uh, my brother and a friend of ours and I will go every summer on a, a backpacking trip up into the mountains. And usually it's like three nights and pretty, you know, pretty good hike back in there. And despite the fact that you're trying to cut weight and you're like debating, do I really need like three pairs of socks? Maybe I could get away with two, but somehow I still managed to usually squeeze in like three, three or four books, which is really smart, you know, but, um, so anyway, yeah, I've had some great memories of, of taking books up there and often, you know, like when you're camping and all of a sudden you see the clouds starting to get dark and you hear the thunder rolling in and it's like, Oh no, we better head for the tent. And, uh, I've had some great memories of just being stuck in the tent while it's raining and just sitting there in the sleeping bag, you know, reading all these books and stuff. So that's, that's been a really good one. And a couple that stand out to me that I've read in that kind of a setting is a river runs through it, which is one of my favorite books. Um, And then there's a book called fire season by Philip Larson. That's about this reporter who would spend entire summers up in a fire tower in New Mexico, you know, and his job was Mm -hmm. just to spot and look out for the smoke. Um, so anyway, th- those are just some, I associate not only the content of them with summer, but also some of the memories of reading them with summer. So yeah, lots of great memories. How about you? What do you think about when you go to summer reading? Well, so I do think of the library. We, we also have our kids all signed up for the library reading, um, you know, what would I call it? The reading program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they, they, they get little prizes, uh, but they, they like win or earn uh, tickets to mm. enter into giveaways for various kind of cool things. Usually it's my wife who wins. Cause I, we can both sign up for it too. She always oh, nice. wins something. It feels like I never, <laughs> never do. But beyond that, you can also, every time you get a certain amount, you can do a spin on a wheel that gives you like a, a free pair of silly socks or candy or, you know, who knows what, who right, knows what right. the prize on the wood, something from the local business, you know, a free cinnamon roll or something like that. Mm. Um, and I love doing that with them. They do that throughout the year though. So I don't always think about that as summer, but definitely I'm already like, kids, what kind, what books do you want to read this summer? What should we do? I'll buy, I'll buy you a, you know, not just a personal pan pizza. We'll buy you a pizza. That's <laughs> you right. Know, if you get some of this stuff done. I think it backfires a little bit more on me than it, than it should, but <laughs> at any rate. Um, and I think of, I do think of nonfiction for whatever reason in the summertime, my, my brain starts to shift to um, more nonfiction. Uh, for mm. example, I've been uh, reading the Candace Millard uh, book, the, what is it? The river of the gods, the one about the Nile mm. uh, that just came out. And I just, I don't know why there aren't, I'm not always in the mood for nonfiction like that, but for whatever reason, when June comes around, I kind of am. And a lot of times it's American history, but it's not exclusive to that. I think there's something about, uh, you know, and it could go all the way back to watching uh, Ken Burns' Civil mm-hmm. War, yeah. which is such, to me, a summary thing, even though the Civil War took place, you know, other times of year. So many of those battles were, you know, in the heat of summer and, you know, July and and I watched it, you know, in the summertime. And so my mind often wants to, to watch or watch or, or read nonfiction books. And so that's one thing that definitely comes to mind. Um, but I think of school reading lists, you know, so it's always like, well, what classic should I be reading? What, what mm. book that's, I have, I missed, you know, the catcher in the rye or the great Gatsby or the age of innocence, you know, books I've read now, but you know, a lot of those I didn't get assigned for school. I read them because they were on these lists 
uh, you know, Slaughterhouse Five. I remember. I, I remember one summer just getting one of those lists and just working my way through it over the course of the the summertime because nice. we didn't read those in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something I think about. And I'm with you. I don't necessarily change a lot of the things that I read. Like I don't have um, a beach or a vacation book per se. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are going on holiday, and I bought. Is it Jade City? It's a Jade. It's a trill. It's a fantasy trilogy by Fonda Lee. Is who it is. An Asian um, kind of set fantasy. I don't know much about it other than people are like it's kind of like The Godfather too, you know. And I'm thinking, well, it's getting good, good reviews. I think it was a finalist for you know something like the Hugo or the Nebula, one of those. And I thought, oh, I'll give that a go on the vacation. Right. So I, you know, I do sometimes look at that, but I may have done that in November as well. Had it just right. struck me in the mood, but, mm-hmm. um, but I'll often try and, you know, figure out what books that's one of the funnest parts of a vacation is what books am I going to take this year? I know what, I was going to ask between you and your wife and your kids, how many books total would you say will be going along with you on this vacation? Oh, I usually take the most. My yeah. wife usually takes a couple Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, and, and she's very, she's so much more dedicated when she starts a book to finishing it before mm-hmm. she starts another one, uh, than I am, <laughs> you know, I'll, I like to sit there with it on the, I, I don't know, it's maybe not the best way, but I, sometimes I'm like, I just like to have them on the bed stand, you know, I don't, yeah. I know I'm not going to read all of those, but I can pick at them. I can look at the first few pages of a few of these that I'm excited by. And eventually I'll settle on one and, and read it over the course of the vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I usually take four or five because we're flying this time. I probably won't take quite as many because I don't want to pack around all of them, but that might just be in my mind right now. We leave yeah. in a few days. I haven't packed yet. They'll probably yeah. find a few more will probably find their way in there. <laughs> I was going to say, you need to get your priorities straight. If you're going to lose something, it can't be the books, you know, like, oh, do I really need deodorant? Nah. Right. Well, and they have deodorant where we're going. And if they <laughs> there don't, there's, there's the C, right? I'll, exactly. <laughs> I'll be okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, and the kids, the kids actually usually just want their screens, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. But so. Right. They'll, they'll probably start their reading when they get back. And I'll take a few books that I've been reading to them. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I know most of the time they'll be playing and, and doing things with cousins that, and never wanting to say, Oh dad, we're ready for you to read uh, to right. us. But it's always maybe, good to have it on hand. Maybe. Yeah. yeah there's, there's that time it will happen. And if I don't have it, <laughs> I will be upset. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but the other thing that I was kind of thinking of as we were talking about summer reading is I do like this time of year. Um, but sometimes it can feel so hot and a little bit miserable that I get really passive. You know, I, I'm more like want to just sit down in a basement and watch a show or something Mm -hmm. than read. But I do love a good book that evokes the summer and evokes the season that makes me enjoy the season better. And so I was trying to think of some great books that I've read that take place in the summer and kind of evoke that heat. And I thought of a few, there's, um, Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. Have you read that one? No, but it's funny. That one has come up for years as a great summer book. And I've heard so many people say that. And I keep meaning to read it. Maybe this will be the summer where I'll finally do that. They're all, it's kind of a series of short stories, but they take place in the same community, I think. I was surprised. I didn't know they were a series of short stories. So when I'm reading them and I'm four or five in, I'm thinking, how is all this going to tie together? <laughs> <laughs> and what does <is> this, <laughs> this kind of weird sci-fi story have to do with these other 
summery, you know, stories, but it is a lovely look at a kind of a summer vacation, a, a moment in time, because, you know, we think of summer vacation as this thing, but every one of them that you've had is in the past. Now it's gone. Mm-hmm. It, that summer is, is done. And there aren't as many in the future for us as there were in the, you know, well, maybe right. there's as many in the, but as there were last year, you know, that they, they come and go and they, those time periods come and go, you know, summer vacation as a kid, those are done for us. That's not Mm. happening again. And so to be able to evoke some of these things um, is really just a wonderful way to relive it and re-experience some things and, and form a lot of those memories again. And I think dandelion wine does such a great job with that. It's been a long time since I read it, but I I loved dandelion wine. Um, I thought of the great Gatsby because again, one of my earliest reading memories is reading about, uh, that scene early on in the book where it's so hot and you walk in and it looks like the, the women in the room are lying on clouds and oh, the yeah. drapes are, are blowing. Mm-hmm. Man, that's a vivid memory, just sitting down and reading that part uh, of The Great Gatsby and how the heat and the, you know, all of that. Um, there was a book that came out a few years ago called We Were Liars by E. Lockhart that takes mm-hmm. place in kind of a summer time that I, I really enjoyed. It's more like a a teen summer vacation, but with, um, you know, uh, kind of a more sinister uh, aspect to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's atonement, Uh, not because the whole thing takes place in the summer by Ian McEwan, but because of the, you know, the, the the summer scene and the, that food that just does not belong on Mm -hmm. a table in the summertime and that, that sense there. So those were some of the, the summer books, you know, not necessarily summer books, but, books that I felt like evoke that sense yeah. that actually make me go, oh, you know, I can, I can enjoy these experiences even when they're somewhat unpleasant in the summer because of the heat and because of all that. Right. You can still evoke it and in a way that makes you kind of grateful for the memories and grateful for the things to come as you're living through it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was trying to think of a few myself that, that kind of had that same effect and definitely came up with a couple. This one's a little on the nose, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention the summer book by Tova Janssen. I mean, that one definitely has a lot oh, of that. I love that book. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Yep. And a theme I was noticing between some of these is often it does follow children. These books that came to mind for me over the course of a break, especially a summer break where they're in a different place. And so it has that kind of feeling like when you're on vacation or going to stay with relatives when you're a kid over mm-hmm. summer where it's like this displacement and then it starts to become these daily habits that, take yeah. up your entire day. And, and for that period of one week or one month or whatever, however long it is, that's your life. But you know, it's this fleeting little time still. And it's such a fascinating feeling when, you know, for the next week, this will be what I will be doing every day. And this is my entire life, but it may never happen again. Mm-hmm. So I thought that, you know, the summer book has some of that. The Mountain Lion, which I bring up all the time by Gene Stafford. I mean, that's the same thing. It's these two yeah. kids who are going to the Colorado mountains during a break. And, and it has a lot of that feeling of, this is a temporary time in their lives, but at the time it's so immersive and everything. Um, one that I was thinking about, you mentioned the library. So Stephen King's it, I know that oh, book is yeah. huge and it takes place in so many mm-hmm. different seasons. But one of my very strongest memories of reading period is there's a scene where the kids all get out of school for the summer and they're all running outside and throwing their papers in the air and screaming and everything. And everybody starts to disperse. And the, the kid named Ben 
immediately heads <laughs> straight for the library. And it talks about, I don't remember exactly all the details, but my memory of it is he walks out of the blazing sun and he walks into the coolness and the peace of the library <laughs> and he finds his happy place. And if I'm not mistaken, he even signs up for the summer reading thing right away. And he just sits there and, you know, and starts to do that. And that's such a strong reading memory for me. And so much of that book too, there's so many, you know, scenes with the kids goofing around down in the barrens, you know, and mm-hmm. throwing rocks at each other and riding their bikes and everything. And obviously there's lots of not good um, scenes as far as... It's not summer. all happy. No, it's not. <laughs> but I don't know if it was the time I read it or whatever, but some of those scenes, even though the, much of the um, content is horrific, there's still some peacefulness and some really, you know, nostalgic scenes in that book. So that was another one that came to mind for me. Well, and I read that one in the summertime too. Yeah, I, I was that when I was young. I remember mm-hmm. starting it outside on our on our porch or our deck, you know, as a kid, and reading the initial few chapters with the paper boat and and just over the course of that summer yeah. and looking at the dates because he often has newspaper articles or just the dates of when you're with the kids versus the adults. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those kids' chapters are, you know, in my mind. I can't. I read it in years and haven't looked, but it seemed like they're you know, June 15th and, yeah. you know, June 20th. And it just, it, it is, a, it's a very summery kind of book in a strange way. Yeah, absolutely. And the last one I was thinking about was L.P. Hartley's The Go-Between. Which I which haven't read yet. You haven't? Okay. Well, mm-hmm. that one is very much kind of tying I, into some of the themes. Oh, go ahead. Well, as you can say, I got it for Christmas this last year. Oh, uh, maybe that would be a good one for you to consider for this summer because it's very much a lot of the themes that we're talking about with, a child who goes somewhere else for a period of time. And it it has a lot of summer scenery, but also just that feeling of, like I was talking about being somewhere else where you're not necessarily from trying to find your new role in this temporary place where you are. And uh, that book is amazing and and definitely a Hmm. summer book. So that might be a good one to consider. Well, since we just finished some assigned reading and I have other things on the docket, but I may, I may toss that one in. Yeah, I don't know. you're packing my bags for me. Sorry, here, <laughs> yeah, oh, no, did I mention War great. and Peace? It's That's great. a great book. War and Peace no, is a great book for travel. No, that one is retired from my bucket list. I <laughs> mentioned that in episode one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I think summer is an interesting thing because it is an idol. It's a break for as a kid, yeah. but it's a like a it's like a bunch of them all at once. It's a break in school. Mm-hmm. It's a oftentimes you're. You know, it's it's your childhood, so there's kind of that sense of an idol. Um, a lot of the days are kind of have more space within them. And a lot of times you go on holidays, and so you have those little idols. It's like a big, you know, kind of conglomeration of, you know, the makings of what will be nostalgia later on. But, you know, experiencing those things, it's so interesting. And I, Stephen Milhauser has an interesting story about a kid who's on a vacation kind of going through, I think he's, I don't remember if he's tubing down a river or a ditch or something like that. And just having this horrific sense that this is almost over. Mm. And of course that cascades into just general existence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, this time, you know, it was just yesterday that we were getting here and now it's, you know, this much closer to the end. It's a, it's a wonderful story. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it was in the New Yorker maybe a decade ago. Um, I'll figure it out. Uh, while while you talk for just a second, because I can look this up if you don't mind. No, absolutely. That sounds great. I was. It's funny. My 
I try not to do this too much, but my kids, as they're going through their summer vacation and they're having those moments where like they're bored or just lolling around and complaining, I'm just like, you do realize that this is one of those times in your life. It's not going to last forever where, you know, most adults who are going to work and all that stuff, they would love to have that time to be bored. And I try not to lay it on too thick, but it's funny how sometimes as a kid, you get these periods and and you just don't quite understand how special they are, you know, which I think is part of that. That's what we all did. And that's kind of what creates that nostalgia is at the time you don't realize that it's going to be this temporary fleeting time. But as you look back on it, you're like, oh, man, I'm so jealous of my kids. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Even just yesterday, the kids are out of school yesterday. And one of them comes up in the, you know, at like four. I'm bored. And I'm like, <laughs> what? How is that even possible? Yeah. <laughs> like, so Here, you can do my work. I'm going to go lay by the pool. Right. I, I can be bored for a while. I'd be, exactly. You know. <laughs> um, so the Stephen Milhauser story is called Getting Closer. And it was published mm-hmm. in the January 3rd, 2011 issue of The New Yorker. But it takes place in uh, on like a little bit of a vacation. And it starts, he's nine, going on ten, skinny tall, shoulder blades pushing out like things inside a paper bag. New blue bathing suit, too tight here, too loose there. <laughs> but what's all this got to do with anything? <laughs> and it's just, he's going down this river, yeah. Um, if he goes into the river, he'll lose the excitement, the feeling that everything that matters because he's getting closer and closer to the moment he's been waiting for. When you have that feeling, everything is full of life, every leaf, every pebble. But when you begin, you're using things up. The day starts slipping away behind you. He wants to stay on this side of things, to hold it right here. A nervousness comes over him, a chilliness in the sun. In a moment, the day will begin to end. Things will rush away behind him. The day he's been waiting for is practically over. He sees it now. He sees it. Ending is everywhere. It's right there in the beginning. They don't tell you about it. It's hidden away in things. Under the shining skin of the world, everything's dead and gone. (laughs) Wow. Sorry to bring that into our summer episode, but <laughs> folks, it's the beginning of summer. Enjoy it now because it's already right. over. <laughs> no, but it brings up that interesting thing about summer. I think we talked about it in one of our earliest episodes where there's all this profusion of life and green and mm-hmm. n- newness. But there's also, there was a poem that you talked about where there is that edge to it where to some degree, it's almost like this overabundance or this bordering on decay too. So it's, it is interesting. That's why some of these seasonal episodes are so interesting because your initial thoughts of what a season means mm-hmm. aren't the only thing there's, there's complications there that I really find fascinating. No, I think it's, I think it's fun too. And I, the thing that's nice is we may be regretful of a time that's passing, you know, an idol that's passing, but we love the fall, you know, mm-hmm. and we have our holiday time and then spring is so beautiful. And, uh, you know, so it is it is something that can also bring a lot of, you know, maybe maybe comfort and if if we have the right perspective on things. So absolutely. No, that's great. But, well, do you have any summer reading plans this year? I, I wouldn't necessarily talk too much about how deep we would go into this. But yeah. is there something that's on your reading docket that you're like, I'm going to read that this summer? Yeah, I mean, I don't have any specific projects, I wouldn't say, but there's a lot of books given this busy time that I just mentioned that have been kind of sitting there waiting for me and they're calling my name. So now, as you mentioned, we have this three day weekend coming up to kind of kick off some time mm-hmm. where I don't really have. No, it's already re- over, Paul. 
Oh, no. <laughs> well, as we record. Um, no, but yeah. So uh, Gerald Murnane has been buzzing all over the internet lately, and I was able to track down. His books are kind of hard to find sometimes in the U.S., and I think maybe elsewhere, um, which maybe given this recent push, they'll become more readily available. But I was able to track down a couple of them from the library that I'm going to dig into here, I hope, this weekend. And then, as those of you who follow me on Twitter may have seen, as I was headed to the airport for my work trip, I had a moment and there's a tattered cover in the in DIA, the Denver International Airport. And I just happened to make my way over to the bookstore and picked up a couple of books that I had mentioned earlier that I was look, really looking forward to, which is Trust by Hernan Diaz and Paradise by mm-hmm. uh, Fernanda Meltor. So I grabbed both of those this past week and, and both of those I think are going to be within the next month if not sooner. So those are a few that I'm definitely Mm -hmm. eyeing at the early part of summer. And then as we get towards the end of the summer, I would like to kind of launch into, you know, my um, brother's Karamazov, at least getting Mm -hmm. it down off the shelf and getting it prepared. I don't know if I'll read it late in the summer or maybe heading into fall, but I'm I'm definitely eyeing it. It's time, you know, we're, we're coming up on halfway through the year. So I want to make sure that that doesn't slip through. I I absolutely want to make that a priority. Um, The only other thing I'll mention is I think it was, it was one of our friends on Twitter, and I don't remember who, but somebody mentioned taking one month to read only Archipelago books. Yeah, and I saw that. Yeah, that I thought that was a lovely idea. I love that idea. So I don't know that for sure that I'll do that, but the idea of finding a publisher, and maybe it will be Archipelago, and just kind of doing a deep dive, that sounds really appealing over the summer too. So I'll report back if I end up doing that. But mm-hmm. I really love that idea of just, you know, nothing prescriptive or formal, but just picking a publisher you love and just diving in. That sounds really appealing to me. Yeah, I, I liked that idea. And Archipelago is such a great one to do that with. Those books are so, it's so easy to fall inside of those because of their shape and their mm-hmm. scent and their texture. Oh, no. uh, just the physical book. It's a delight to carry it around and read it. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea. How about you? What about any summer plans for you? <clears throat> well, so I talked about the Jade City. Mm-hmm. As the one, you know, that fantasy book. Um, there's a book called The Go Between by El. Oh, no. I haven't heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> I did just throw that on my list, nice. um, just to to make sure it's there. Um, and then I do have Trust by Hernan Diaz as well that mm-hmm. I think sounds great. I actually checked out the audio from the library just to kind of get a, a, a feel for it and listened to the first chapter and thought, well, this I want to read this one. Um, but I enjoyed it, but I, I, I know I'll get more when I'm reading it yeah. and not trying to listen to it while I'm doing other things and, you know, or driving or something like that. Um, but that I, I really liked what I, what I heard. And then, um, I also have the, uh, Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel that I'm looking forward to reading. I, I, I bought it and the glass hotel cause I hadn't read the glass hotel yet. And I thought, Oh, I need to keep up on her. I'll read it mm-hmm. first. And I'm really enjoying the glass hotel. That's what I'm reading probably this weekend and trying right. to finish it this weekend uh, before we leave and then um, have the sea of tranquility to, to follow that up. And, you know, I don't know what it is about her. If I, if I talk about the stories themselves, I mean, station 11 is easy to kind of give someone a little bit of a hook, but the glass hotel it could sound so stupid and kind of banal Mm. or uninteresting, but she just has a way there's something in the tone. There's a softness, strangely, even in station 11 where horrific things are happening. There's a, I don't know what it is. There's a, 
there's a sensitivity to fragility or something like that that makes her tone just very it's not light that's not it at all it but it's delicate mm, um sensitive and i don't know what it is it, even when i'm not like totally invested in maybe one of the scenes or one of the characters i'm very invested in the way that she writes it and i'm feeling the same way a lot with um with the glass hotel there's you know some characters where i'm like oh i don't necessarily care to read more about them um because i'm interested in where their story goes and that can sound like you know i don't care um, but I realize what, what keeps me going is just the way that she's going to portray them and kind of talk about some of their own insecurities and vulnerabilities. And it's very, it's, it's got a sadness to it, um, that I find very, very interesting. And I, I don't know much about the Sea of Tranquility. I've kind of kept my eyes off of reviews and such, yeah. um, not necessarily deliberately. It's just the way it's worked, but I'm excited about that one too. Yeah, no, I'm glad. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts as we've talked about with her. I don't, I didn't love Station Eleven, but it's kind of like an earworm where you still find yourself thinking about it. And, and yeah, it, it's there's she's definitely there's something very special about her. Where I've talked to you and several other people about her books and varying degrees of passion for the books themselves. But no matter what you end up thinking of her books, she's not somebody that anybody just dismisses. And, yeah. and there's something about her, like you said, that just keeps working through your brain. So. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you think of those as you make your way through them. Yeah, I'll, I'll report back for sure, and let let you know whether I think oh you you should you should check one of these out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now we do have one other book on our shelf that we don't know what it is yet for summer for our summer reading plans, mm-hmm. and that's because we decided to do a Smooks and Gripes podcast summer book club, one book selected by our listeners from from a list we're going to do a poll and uh, if you're listening to this the poll is out because i'm going to make it go live the 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 day that this podcast comes out it's on twitter because i have no idea where else to do a poll that people can just find and go to Mm -hmm. but we will link to it in our show notes we will link to it um in the substack newsletter and you can go there i'm going to pin it to the top of my feed at mooks m-o-o-k-s-e on Twitter, and you can help us pick which of these four books is going to be our another one of our summer reads. And we would love it if you read along with us. You know, pick a book that you want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, we've picked four that we want to read, so we're good with whatever ends up winning. Both of us are. We made that deliberate. We're n- neither of us said, "I just want to put this one on here. I don't care if you don't want to read it. Suck it right. up." You know, we 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 really tried to find four books that we would be delighted if any of them won and disappointed if it didn't. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) so we're going to be disappointed by three of these that lose, but very happy with the one that wins. And we want you to, to vote. And like I say, read along, probably the best place to follow along and share your thoughts will be the newsletter, but certainly also on Twitter, um, maybe to an extent on Instagram as well, but you can also email us and DM us your thoughts whatever you need. Uh, but we're going to let you know what book it is. Um, we'll, we'll publish it even before the podcast, but on our next episode, you know, in, in two weeks, we'll know what it is. And by that time, we'll have a plan for time when we're going to start it. It'll likely be, you know, not right away. Of course you can read it whenever you want to. Um, but we'll, we'll set a time that we're going to start it. 
We're going to read it. We'll discuss it. And then we'll get back on here and, and talk about it here, you know, toward the, you know, July or August. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what book it is, you know, to, yeah. we'll, we'll make it, we'll make the plan. But for now, please go over and vote for one of the following. This is Renata Adler's Speedboat, uh, uh, Jorge Luis Borges's Ficciones. You can get his complete fiction, but this is the particular book in there, Ficciones. Uh, William Trevor's The Children of Dinmouth and Willa Cather's A Lost Lady. Those sound right, Paul? Did I get uh, that right? Those sounds four? right. Everyone you mentioned, I was thinking, I hope that one wins, and then you mentioned the next one. <laughs> so yeah, no, seriously, they all sound wonderful. Can't <laughs> wait to see what people think. And I think for both of us, books we've never read. We we, we yeah. also did that. We picked mm-hmm. books that we have not, have not read yet. Um, Twitter allows for polls to be open for seven days, and I figure, why not? Yeah. Um, you know, make sure people who only get to listen to this, you know, uh, a few days after it comes out or over the next week. Uh, so it's going to start the day this episode goes live for everybody. And um, that is June 2nd, Thursday, June 2nd. So Patreon listeners, I know that it's still May for you, May 31st, when you can get this and access it. But the the Twitter poll will go up on June 2nd and be open for a week. And then we'll come back right after that to record our next episode and let you know what won. So yeah. exciting Looking stuff. Looking forward to it. All right. So again, go vote. We'll, we'll be back in a second with our wrap up of our assigned reading. listeners a few weeks ago a month ago now almost Mm. we did an episode on short books fiction and at the end of that we each picked a book to read that was short Uh, some shorts are shorter than others it turns out I'm excited (laughs) to talk to you about that Paul (laughs) Uh, but with no bitterness just a little bit of a a chuckle Um, (laughs) and uh, you may remember uh, Paul chose aphasia by uh, Mauro Javier Cardenas, and I chose Enemonde by Jean Giono, translated by Bill Johnston. And let's start with aphasia. I don't know how if anybody joined us on this. We didn't really follow up, so if, if it, you know, there may be several of you who did not go and get these and maybe waiting to see if we liked them or not, and maybe mm. that'll be a deciding factor. So I don't intend to spoil these. No. I don't think we could spoil these. These are not spoiler <laughs> kinds of books. They're the plots of both of these are just I can't even I don't even know. I don't you yeah. know even if, if I I'm, wanted to spoil these, yeah. I don't know how I would. Yes, that's how I was feeling. I'm like spoiling them um, in some ways might might be doing you a favor. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> somebody to spoil them bit, for me. Yeah. Yes. A little bit enigmatic, mm-hmm. a little bit uh, hard to wrap our heads around, but in, in, in a really nice way. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paul, I think you were a little bit nervous about aphasia. Do you want to kind of, every time I, I touch base with you, we, we were like, we're, let's not talk about how we, how we feel about him. But I could sense you were a little bit 
maybe feeling worried that you had assigned me a book that I was hating, which is yeah. not the case. Uh, yeah, so, but not but, hating necessarily, but it was more when you and I started this podcast, we had kind of always said like, we want to make sure that it doesn't ever feel, you know, like work. Yeah. Or, you know, I wanted, to, we always wanted to make sure that if we were going to assign each other a book or if we were going to choose to read a book, that it, it was something that we would both enjoy. And so, you know, everything I read about this one ticked all the boxes for so many things that I think you know, are, are things that we look for in a book. And so when I started reading it, I was loving the first, you know, passages. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is great. And then you and I, I think we we haven't talked much about these, but we both mentioned there are some sections of this where it is a little bit of, of slow going. And as you make your way through it, you start to realize it pays off, of course. But yeah, no, I think the only reason that I was a little hesitant was just this is supposed to be short books, which you think of as like something you can sit down and read in like a, a sitting or two. <laughs> and this is absolutely not the case with aphasia, but um, hopefully in the long run, it sounds like it paid off for you. And it definitely did for me. Too. Yeah. I really liked this book. Yeah. I, I may have even been a little unsure, you know, 50 pages in. Mm-hmm. And so listeners know, I mean, these aren't, it's not like, um, it's not like a Bernhard book where it's, you know, you start the first word and you're not going to have a break until the no, last word. No. There are there are chapters and breaks and some of them are longer than others, but it is a big block of text, usually mm-hmm. without any kind of real sense of where you can take a breath mm-hmm. um, from beginning to end. You know, you just you're like, okay, the next chapter starts in five pages. Just dive in, <laughs> you know, right. and read along. It's a lot of stream of consciousness in a way. Um, and I don't want to. That that's so. <sighs> That that term means something, but it also is like like a a catch for maybe people have a knee jerk reaction to that. Right. It's not really at the same time stream of consciousness. It it's like a bunch of different threads of thought mm-hmm. that are going on. I know that. Uh, uh, do you mean stream of consciousness, Trevor? <laughs> yes, but it's like I, I don't know. Do you know what I'm trying to get? How, how, to no. Distinguish it between something like you know Finnegan's Wake, which comes up. Right. Um, or James Joyce, which comes up, or Bernhard, who comes up, or Krishna Horkai, who comes up in this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to think of an author who's practiced this kind of, um, you know, uh, almost impenetrable wall of text that uh, Cardenas does not mention in this book. Mm-hmm. But I still feel like he's doing something different. And no, clearly, really I have not figured out a way to articulate that. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to do any better, but no, I mean, I think you put it very well. And in my notes, I'd even mentioned, of course, stream of consciousness. But, you know, there's a f- fairly minimal amount of punctuation, but it's not like you said, one big long sentence or anything like that. It's more the way I looked at it. It's funny that it's called aphasia because aphasia means loss of speech. And I feel like that's yeah. a good insight <laughs> into the author, you know, poking some fun at this because the the narrator himself his name is Antonio and much of it takes place in his head and it is him. It's like, he's so excited or he's just sharing all of his thoughts in this big flow, but as he's sharing, it'll shift and it'll go into somebody else's perspective, sometimes in the middle of a sentence or paragraph, but then other times there'll be entire chapters that skip out of his head and move into other people's heads. So mm-hmm. like you said, it, it is a different feeling than it, some of these other authors that, um, that you've mentioned, but there are big swaths of kind of what I, I guess I think it is stream of consciousness. I think that's the best way to describe it. But at the same time, it's really compelling. And most of it is pretty easy to read. 
You know, there are yeah. those challenging sections, but it carries you along in a very Bernhardian way, I would say, um, or a, mm-hmm. almost like a valser. How you once you'd like, I keep using this comparison, but like jumping in that river and it kind of, if you just relax and let it take you, eventually you'll end up somewhere where you can get your footing. I mean, I think that's definitely it. Should we touch a little bit just on, on Antonio himself? Yeah, for sure. Because part of the fun of this book was he kind of sees himself as various people. Yeah. And as various phases of life, like um, this is Antonio one who liked this and that and the other, this is Antonio two. Antonio five and Mm -hmm. and you kind of get to know these various Antonios just like he's talking through them. And so I think we absolutely should, uh, should maybe illuminate just a little bit about who he is and some of the things he's dealing with as his current Antonio. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, he's from Colombia, but now living in the U S he lives in Los Angeles and he shares custody of his two children with his ex-wife. Um, and so that's one of the big things in his life that consumes him, you know, this idea of fatherhood and how to be a good father. And he mentions, you know, that he did not have a great upbringing. And so he doesn't really have a good model for parenthood. And so there are times where he's talking about how he'll get ideas on how to be a parent from watching movies and things like that. So he's, he's striving, he's very much imperfect, but you can tell that he really is consumed with the idea of being a good father and, you know, trying to to give his kids something that he didn't have. And he's not always perfect at that by any means. Um, So that's one of the big stresses in his life. But another one, we come to learn pretty early on that his sister is mentally unwell and she has a lot of delusional thoughts. For example, she believes she's being wiretapped by Barack Obama in a conspiracy with her family. And so this is one of those things that continues as he's trying to work his way through his life. He keeps trying to distract himself with different things, his writing, or he's part of this online dating service where he's trying to, you know, find ways to kind of distract him from these troubles that are going on in his life. But I thought his sister was one of the most fascinating characters in this whole thing. There's actually a passage, if you wouldn't mind, I'll, I'll try to mm-hmm. read just a, and I, I'm going to dip in and out and I'm going to try to find a good place to stop. <laughs> but like we said, with this style, it, I may just end in the middle, but it'll give you a good idea of, of what this book is like. So it says, When his sister came to see him in Los Angeles one last time, months before she was arrested for allegedly threatening to shoot her neighbors, she brought along photocopies of a military article explaining advanced techniques in mind control, handing them to him and asking for his help. I promised her I would read them, Antonio writes, but I never did, although I remember the diagrams of spy aircraft like geometry assignments. But instead of helping her, what could he have possibly done to help her? He sobbed in front of her, which didn't help because she stopped telling him anything. I don't want to make you cry, Tonito, Antonio's sister said. And in her dark living room in Baltimore, as she grew more comfortable with the possibility, he was in fact her brother. Her everything became a rant that, because of its length and recursiveness, reminded him of Correction by Thomas Bernhard. I know how to appear sane, she said, even if you call the police. I know how to appear sane and calm and reasonable. Yes, officer. No, officer. That doesn't sound like an adequate explanation of quantum mechanics, officer. Laugh. Tonio, that was a joke. So that was just, you know, like I said, I could keep going because once you start reading, he's a really good writer. Um, But maybe that gives you an idea of the way that kind of intersperses some of these little asides right into that stream. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that's I don't know how um, organized my thoughts are going to be here, but I really thought she was a, a fascinating character and their relationship over the course of the book goes through so many different changes as he looks back at their past 
you deal with kind of where they are presently. And then as you move forward in the book, some things start to change as well. Yeah, I, this is definitely a book that I think would serve well an, another close reading even mm-hmm. because the first time through is trying to make connections, but that's kind of what Antonio is doing too with his own life. He's, he's a data analyst. And so he, you know, you get the sense that he has a spreadsheet where he has plotted who he has been yeah, and is connecting things. You know, I, I have the list here of a few of them. Antonio, uh, Antonio seven is the father of Ada and Eva. That's where I kind of get the Finnegan's Wake mm, <laughs> reference yeah, to that. an extent. Um, Antonio th- uh, four is the intellectual. Antonio two, Ivy League. Antonio three, bodybuilder. Antonio seven, old man soccer. Antonio eight, the writer. Antonio one, young man soccer. Antonio five, database analyst. You know, and he, he tabulates the other Antonios, linking Antonio seven and Antonio one with a curved double arrow connector. It can get a little bit technical. There's even a part where I'm like, this is really fun to read, but what the heck is he saying? I don't even know. Yeah. In other words, if discontinuity indicator equals zero, then soccer, and then it has the greater than, less than science fiction. But unfortunately for the discontinuity indicator to ever equal zero, he would have to have been a different Antonio. You know, it's just, it, it can get into these various modes. This is where Ulysses almost comes up, like, you know, where you might have it almost feel like a newspaper or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Yeah. But I really liked the sister's thread and the way that you sense that this is him trying to make sense of old trauma, both for her and for him, as well as his current situation in life. And says his sister, you know, sister un- understanding her life. Yeah. I really liked that part. And then realizing that a lot of the books he is referencing here that we both really like, he calls them the fictions of ununderstanding. Mm. Like um, you've got the unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro, excuse me, that he brings up. He references a lot of these in his, in chapter titles um, or in the names he chooses for himself, because a lot of them are, um, when Antonio the ninth was Antonio the first, but, it, but it's not just that it's, um, it's when Antonio was a database analyst, uh, when Antonio was Arturo and you, mm-hmm. you don't know what it's going to be about until you start to read that chapter. You know, when yeah. Antonio was at Arturo, Arturo turns out to be his username on this site, um, where he can pick up women. Mm-hmm. whose safe words are Krasnohorkai or something like that. Right. I mean, it's it's really weird. And uh, you can tell this is someone who has a lot going on in their mind and, and it's convoluted and such. But the thing that I love about it is he's, you know, Cardenas is doing all of this, but at the center of this novel is real humanity and real heart. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's even a part where I can't remember exactly how he puts it, but something like, how do we, how do we remain awake to the misfortunes of the world without sinking ourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these Antonio, who he is and Antonio, when he was Arturo, these turn out to almost feel like coping mechanisms or ways of getting away from who he was. Yeah. And I just really enjoyed that. And and then he's got all of these various 
um, books and authors. He goes to the translation series at Skylight Books. I mean, how many of this is pretty familiar to us just in the world that we we follow on on Twitter and right. and in our online world? I'm like, I feel like I'm reading about one of my friends here. I know, <laughs> absolutely. Now you mentioned that part about him kind of finding ways to cope. I I was reading a Kirk the Kirkus review and it says. Um, confronted with discomfort, Antonio's brain activates its emergency erasure mechanisms. And I really liked that. It was this idea of something that we all do to some degree, I think, throughout life. You have to find these ways to cope with just the volume of information and responsibility. And, you know, as you're reading the news or as different stresses come into your life, you know, everybody has their ways to kind of cope with that. And like we mentioned with him, it's it's maybe different, is very different than you or I would have, but I really liked that. And it kind of did remind me of, you know, like Mrs. Dalloway or some of those things where even though she's dealing with the stresses of life, you get this little glimpse into some of the different ways that she's, you know, dealing with that. Um, and you mentioned, you know, that the humanity that's in this book. And I think I was expecting it to maybe be more cynical than it actually is, but Throughout the whole book, I mean, I mentioned him trying to be a good father and, and you know, forming a relationship with his ex-wife where they're still trying to make this work for their daughters. And then even with the different women that he's picking up through this site, it could have been done very differently. But mm -hmm. one of the things I really thought was fascinating was each one of those women get their section of this book and you find out that like this one plays in the symphony and he goes and watches her play in the symphony and it starts to like touch on her as a person or another lady that he dated, you know, it follows her as she tries to get back a dog that was stolen by an ex-boyfriend. And it, it takes this time to actually delve into the humanity of each of the characters, which when I started the book, I don't know that I anticipated it to go in that direction. Um, and even with his sister, you know, I thought for much of the book that it might go in some, some different directions than it actually did, but there are some really, soft and kind moments between them that's that are mixed in with a lot of the you know addressing the mental illness and some of the conspiracy theories and all that stuff but they continue to connect whether in the past or even in the present in ways that are actually pretty touching so i don't know it's a really interesting book mm -hmm. there's a really good review in the northwest review that uh, what you're touching on there i think really goes into it really well it's about these relationships he has with these women mm. um says, Antonio probes them into divulging their personal histories. A lot of them have chapter titles and, you know, yeah. it's about them in a way. Uh, many are immigrants themselves, much like a psychiatrist or an oral historian. That's kind of his role in, in a way. In so doing, he comes off as a cross between a Lothario and a hopeless romantic. He's drawn to these women less out of sexual compulsion than out of a desire to disappear into their lives in the same way that he disappears into books and, or movies. Regardless, one still gets the sense that he's using them. And then here's the thing that I think is so interesting. And I like that. Ah, this, this articulates it so well. Likewise, Antonio feels like an interloper among the members of his family. He reflects at one point on this family of his, which amazingly still includes him, as if he can't quite believe that they keep allowing him to come around. Cardenas's deft characterization of Antonio's confused, troubled masculinity is one of the novel's most impressive achievements. And I agree, it doesn't come off like a, uh, it's not self-pitying and, and, mm -hmm. or even author pitying. It's, you know, this is one of the, the, the pitfalls of all these great white male authors of the 20th century in America 
is you get the sense you're supposed to feel sorry for some of these troubled, mm-hmm. uh, you know, white men who they write about. And that's not how I feel here. I mean, I know it, this is not written by one of them and it's right. not about one of their subjects either, but he is an intellectual in a way. And he is someone who's going online to meet, you know, these younger women. And so it could come off as very lurid, but it just, it, and it, it is, it's there. Right. But it's acknowledged as such. It's not meant to be sympathetic or here, you got to understand his troubles. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get that, but it's, I don't know. I think it's just really well done. No, I do too. There was one more passage that kind of ties in that I was just going to read, if you don't mind. Um, it's, it's Antonio talking to an ex-girlfriend and it says, if I've learned anything about breakups, Antonio said, and I haven't really learned anything about breakups. And here she interrupted him and said, why do you always quali- qualify yourself like that? And he said, because I believe this business of learning is a mirage we impose on ourselves to feel better about our fated lives. Does that include what I just said about changing, Dora said? That wasn't my intention, but yes, Antonio said, reaching across the table to rest his hand on her forearm, wanting her to believe he could believe she could change. Why shouldn't we nurse our delusions, Antonio said, if we find consolation in them? And that's just an example. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. He's so good at like, all this other stuff, like you said, there's these formulas and he's doing this data analysis and all these other things, but then there's these really human moments, these insights that he just drops in right in the middle of this big paragraph. And you're just like, wow, some of them just take you. Glad I didn't miss that. You know, as I was reading through all the other cataloging of things. Exactly. Like you, what you said about rereading, I think is absolutely something that I'm going to do. And I even started last night because it had been a couple of weeks since I'd read this and I wanted to make sure that I could, you know, Uh try to, to talk about it intelligently or try to at least. And, and even rereading it, I was already getting huge insights that I missed the first time. So I, I absolutely think this is one that would benefit from a reread, but yeah, and, it's so good. And from a lot of other side projects, he oh, references yeah. a ton of books and a ton of movies he does. in this. And he talks about them as if you know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we, I think both of us do know a lot because, again, of the circles we've run around in, mm-hmm. we've come across these, you know, the, and even the Criterion Collection. You can get a lot of these movies that, that are there yeah. um, by just being part of that community and, and look, watching, you know, what they're putting out. So I did love that. But um, but I can also see it being quite intimidating or maybe even having the ability to lose someone who's just coming to it and doesn't maybe have all of those references. And he doesn't Mm -hmm. really hold your hand, even if you do know what they are. He may bring up a movie on page two and then slip into it without mentioning it, like the plot of it, 10 pages later. And it's only because you may know the movie that you realize that's what he's doing. He is is making his life, he is interpreting his life through the lens of that film. And it's fascinating. It's not, and Cardenas is not holding your hand. He's not telling you that's what's going on. It's just, you got to pick up on it. And I'm sure I missed a ton. No, I, I feel the same way. And like I said, even when I was rereading it, I was already picking up on some things that I had missed the first time. So yeah, I I think I could see myself actually rereading this one fairly soon because it's one of those we were talking about, like an earworm feeling book. This is definitely one of those that already, even in the two or three weeks Mm -hmm. since I've read it, I find myself thinking about a lot. He has a debut novel. This is his second novel. His debut novel is called The Revolutionaries Try Again. And I've heard people speak of that one very highly too. So I don't know, would you ever be interested in in checking that one out, do you think? Yeah, for sure. I I would be. I was just going to say though, I I didn't necessarily enjoy reading this one. Yeah. 
it it's one that I think gets its life as you reflect on it. Like if I were just walking around and reading this book, I probably wouldn't give it like right as I'm reading it, like, Mm -hmm. Oh, this is not, you know, it's a lot of, it wasn't just like a lot of work. It just, the, the pleasure factor I think is more in, in making the connections, you know, having your brain kind of working after the fact and having these conversations like we're having. Absolutely. If I just read it and then tried to rate it, I'm not sure if I would have, you know, what would I give it? That kind of no. shows how silly that process is right there. <laughs> right. No, it's true. I mean, that's what we do so often is give this initial star rating right after we finish a book. And like you said, for this one, I feel the same way. And that's probably where some of my little bit of nervousness was coming from as I was reading it because <laughs> I don't know what I would have given it right after. But like you just said, as you sit there and reflect on it, and I don't know if you find sometimes when you're looking back at your list of books you've read over the course of the year, and you saw, see something you gave a three stars and you're like, whoa, like if I was thinking of it now, I might've given it four or five. So yeah. it's always interesting how time can kind of change those initial thoughts that you have about a book. And this one, I could see it changing multiple times maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, the revolutionaries try again. I, I don't know much about that one, but I, you know, as I was reading this one and trying to read up on it, um, saw that referenced and mm-hmm. thought, huh, this is definitely someone worth the, worth watching and and getting to know all of his work absolutely and if i'm not mistaken don't quote me on this but i believe i'd seen somewhere that this aphasia might be the first book in a i don't know if it's a loose series or i think there might be some follow-ups but again don't quote me but i'm pretty sure that's what i'd read so if so i would be curious to kind of i don't know if you'd be back with antonio or or exactly what the connections would be but i if nothing else i'm very curious to see where he goes next well i'll tell you what this says a lot i think when you said that, I thought, oh, good. I hope so. Yeah, Whether right. you're telling me the truth or not, mm-hmm. just that you say that and I'm excited by that prospect, that that kind of tells me where my heart is with this yeah. book. I, you know, yeah, good. Absolutely. Good. Well, if anybody out there did read along or has read it, I would love to hear their thoughts because this is one I feel like you could talk about with a lot of people for a long time and mm-hmm. never come to any specific conclusions, but it's just a fun book to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's go on to the the other one, Enemonde yeah. by Jean Giono, translated by Bill Johnston, who translated one of my favorite books of all time, mm-hmm. um, Stone Upon Stone by Wisla Mislewski. So Bill Johnston, you know, talk about having some skills. That's Polish. This right. was French. And the thing is, I kind of feel like the voice in Enemonde, the kind of almost bitter, like frustrated (laughs) voice (laughs) is the same. It kind of took me back to stone upon stone in a way. So maybe that's just Bill Johnston. Maybe these books are not at all this way. He just has that (laughs) kind of, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, I think he just has a facility with, with getting that kind of voice in there. And I've read others, John Giono's and, and it has felt very much like them too. But I, as uh, you know, I would say for the first 30, 40 pages of this very short book, I thought, Oh, we're on solid ground. I just finished aphasia, which mm-hmm. I'm like, I have no idea what to even think right now. And I'm reading this one thinking, oh, this is just a straightforward, you know, here we're talking about a place right. in Prov- Provence, France, which he's famous for kind of uh, bringing to life in his books. And then all of a sudden it is all over the place. I've <laughs> lost the thread. I'm not with Enemonde, who is a female character in the book. Um, I say that because I wouldn't have known, you know, Enemonde to me is just a word, not a name mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. with any kind of uh, associations, but she's the central female character of this book. And then there's a part two. 
And she's yeah. not even in that part. She disappears for what? 60, 70 pages out of Oh yeah. Even in part book. one, she's yeah. gone. And then in part two, she's, it's not even about the same people at all. Mm-mm. And I, I am sitting there thinking, Oh my word, what is this book? But the thing is, that's how he is in all of his books to me. Mm-hmm. I start like Melville, for example, what a weird book that you feel yeah. like you have the thread of, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. And mm-hmm. uh, that's how I felt with Enemond. But um, what? Give me some of your initial thoughts of this one. <laughs> Very similar to yours. I was having the same thoughts. Like, okay, now as I started to settle in, it was like, okay, I know where I'm going with this. After aphasia, this might be more of a straightforward, you know, and framing it with our conversation upcoming. I'm like, okay, this will be a good one to talk about. I can make sense of it. And then all of a sudden, I had very different thoughts all of a sudden, but um, yeah, it's very interesting. I was reading a little bit about the history and it sounds like it was kind of published with a lot more notes in some editions where it made it a little more clear that these are yeah. kind of separate pieces. Yes. And it's interesting that Archipelago chose, and I, I, I looking back, I kind of like it that they didn't <laughs> necessarily, speaking of not holding your hand, um, <laughs> they just kind of dropped it in there. And yeah, I, it's, it's very interesting. It, it, wrong-footed me for sure but it's just like aphasia when i got to the end of the book and looking back on it i really like that they did it that way and yeah. and you can see the themes that are there that you don't need to be told what they are you need to find them yourself well and to be honest they may have even cut one of the handholds that was in the original because mm. it wasn't just Enemonde. it it was Enemonde and other characters. Yeah. Just that little part would have been helpful to know that it's okay <laughs> that I'm leaving her. It's right. not all about her. It's about her and this place, which it very much is. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a place novel, novella, oh, yeah. um, you know, dual thing. I don't even know how they connect in many ways because they also connect to Giono's other fiction, like Hill or, um, you know, this is, this just seems to fit with a bigger project for me. <clears throat> of of going through this region and some of the 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 uniqueness I guess I'll put it that way of the people oh, and absolutely. and I, I I did really really like how often he would kind of wax lyrical about the places um but also about some of the philosophies like there's there's this part that maybe isn't unique to this particular re- region but it says the tool that people around here have most often in their hand is a shotgun, whether it's for hunting or for, let's say, philosophical reflection. (laughs) In either case, there's no solution without a shot being fired. The gun hangs from the stem of a wine glass that's been embedded in the wall near the chair where the man of the house sits. Whether this chair is at the table or by the fireplace, the shotgun is always within arm's reach. It's not that the region is unsafe because of a lack of police, on the contrary, even in the, in the heyday of banditry, there was never any crime up here, except for one incident, incident in 1928, and that one was precisely about what everyone is afraid of. Everyone is afraid of loneliness. Families are no solution. At most, they're collections of lonesome people who in reality are each heading in their own direction. Families don't come together around someone. They separate as they move away from someone. Then there's metaphysics. And not the Sorbonne kind, rather the sort you have to bear in mind in confronting irredeemable solitude in the outside world. Monsieur Sartre would not be of much use here. A shotgun, on the other hand, comes in handy in many situations. 
I mean, he's, it's about this place and Enemonde mm. is an interesting character in it. She's, you, you follow her life. I mean, you go through most of her life and she herself is, turns out as a bit of a criminal, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just found these sections about the place and the loneliness of the place and the, the isolation to be what really pulled me through. And I was delighted that the last section, you know, the second part mm-hmm. was almost strictly about place and the Kamargu uh. um, region there. And, uh, did you read Maliqua, the Henri Bosco book that NYRB put out? A, did this like that region? Oh yeah, is I've never been there. I'd never even really heard of it, and now it's like, do I dare go there someday? It sounds like it right. might eat my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, absolutely. It's amazing how he walks that line of it's this gorgeous nature writing or talking about these descriptions of the sun coming up. <laughs> but then just when you're feeling like it's this beautiful, wonderful place, like he does not pull any punches about both the people who, who inhabit it and how cutthroat they are. And, and they're just trying to survive. And then he ties that nicely into the animals and the other creatures who are out there. And it's just very much nature claw and tooth, you know, just everybody's out there trying to survive and doing whatever it takes. Like you mentioned with uh-huh. Enamond, like she's a very, um, you look up to her in many ways because she's made it work, but at the same time, she's making it work by some nefarious means when necessary. And mm-hmm. she's not the only one. So it's definitely a survival of the fittest type of environment. I mean, the much of the second section that you mentioned is all about nature. There's not even that many mentions yeah. of humans. There's one excerpt that I was going to read from there, that part that I thought was just wonderful. It says, now, along with the daylight, the secretary bird enters the stage. He comes in with rapid steps. That's why he's also called the messenger bird. He has his quill tucked behind his ear like a bookkeeper, which is where he gets his name. In order to walk even faster, he uses not his wings, but his ferocity which he hardens like a lead sinker in his forward-leaning head. In this manner, he drives himself onward like a Greek hero. He paces the sands like Achilles circling Troy. He's a walking vulture, destined to live in deserts. His life is pure Iliad. He has greaves on his shins. He's gray as an ancient warrior, except on his flanks, where, like old trophies of plunder, he wears emerald, sapphire, and tarnished gold. For a long time now, he's been on the lookout for snakes watching for the largest of them. He was waiting for the sun. The sun is here. He waits no longer. He attacks. It's just like, wow. I mean, that to me is just wonderful, wonderful writing. And Mm -hmm. a huge chunk of the second half of the book is scenes like that, where it's focusing on a specific animal, a specific region of this region, you know, and so it'll kind of move around and, and just throughout that whole part, there was just some absolutely wonderful nature writing. But like we said, it's not, nostalgic or you know the the birds are tweeting in the trees it's it's all about the reality of nature and that's what i meant about not knowing (laughs) what it was all about as i was reading but then looking back at the tie-ins between some of those scenes and the way that some of these people are surviving it's very much humans as another animal in this tough world just trying to make do and i like to like you put it really well just this He's got this nature, and it seems beautiful. But if you look closer, he's he's showing you how horrific, and not just on a you know it's dangerous level, but the screw up your mind kind of yeah. thing. And I really like this is the beginning of part two. It says when mysteries are very crafty, 
They hide in the light. Shadows are merely a decoy. And that's kind of how I feel about his book here. He's got these mm. beautiful passages about the nature. And then you read a section like this about the people dealing with this region. It will all end well. Hatred, suspicion, jealousy are regional products. Unwilling to waste time on love, people polish up the other passions. It's not that these folks are worse than others. It's that individualists, to an extreme and incurably solitary, they're constantly afraid of being duped. And if love does that often, makes you a dupe. Hatred never does. There you're on solid ground. I love you. That's never sure. Proof is needed. I hate you. That's solid as gold bullion. <laughs> mm, yeah. And I don't know. It, it The whole book then, you know, we're not talking about a lot of the characters, even in Amonda herself, but there are many characters in this that are kind of working through this world and some of them die and some of them disappear and it's it's weird but i really like another part just to kind of you know sum up a, a theme this realist approach at first glance seems at odds with the fact that they inhabit a land where life can only sustain itself with a constant supply of unreality as mm. we shall see but reality pushed to an extreme meets back up again with unreality to face things full on is to accept their magic in any case, not to argue with it. I'll be honest, that part there reminds me of The Haunting of Hill House, the beginning. Oh, you yeah. Know, you yep. you got a dream and, and no one no one lives in, in a purely sane world. And mm -hmm. just this thing of, you know, these people have this, but they have their minds. And mm -hmm. their minds are going to keep working in here. That's where the hatred and the love come in and the the schemes and the 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 kind of... I don't know. I, I, I thought this book was fantastic as well in a, in a very strange way. <laughs> very strange. And we talked a lot about how there's like the harsh reality of all this and, and it's not sugarcoating anything, but also it does take on some kind of mythical descriptions and feelings at times as well. And it kind of reminds me of like the old West and in, in, you know, the U S or for example, where there's kind of these, these tales and these legends and, and these myths that kind of form. And there's, one quick description of Enamonde herself that I was just going to read that I think is really good. And it kind of has that mythical feel like when that section I read earlier, they were talking about the Iliad, you know, this has kind of that feel to it for me. So it says, as for her body, thanks to multiple pregnancies, it had come to resemble the bodies of the women of the high country. It bore only the most distant relation to the human form. Her face was agreeable, despite the loss of all her teeth. Her lips were full enough to remain in bloom. She had an attractive, fresh pink complexion. Her brown eyes were extremely pure, without wrinkles or dark shadows, and were lined with long, curving lashes. She weighed over 280 pounds, but she moved with amazing agility. Men joked about the size of her thighs, without ever having seen them, of course. Despite her weight and her large limbs, she was easily capable of covering 12 miles on foot in five hours on difficult paths. She had milk-white skin, having always protected it from the sun under a hat long sleeves and high collars, like all men and women who know what the sun really is. She wasn't a woman who could be quickly explained. There was all this monstrousness, and the look in those lovely eyes. That gaze led them to be cautious, not because it was hostile, but quite the opposite. Hmm. I just, like, what a great description. <laughs> and it's just, like, it has, like, these 
not godlike, but it's just, I don't know, it, it does have that kind of mythical feel to it to me a little bit. And, and it's just these legends that are walking around these. But then that's balanced by the fact that it's very much, like I said, a, a hyper real book in a lot of ways, too. It's yeah. just fascinating. It is, because as you're saying, and you, you and I went to the same spot as you were saying it. You led mm-hmm. me well. You led ah. me well, I guess I should say. <laughs> no. uh, because it is, it's like, oh, yeah, this sounds mythical. And so familiar to the world we live in right now, right. people we, we encounter and, and meet with. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like Jono's work and I'm glad I've got a few more on the shelf that I haven't read yet. Um, and I hope that keeps coming because it, it seems that, you know, NYRB and Archipelago are, are putting out a few of his things uh, fairly regularly. I hope there's more on the way. I do too. I've read this one now and Melville. Mm-hmm. And and I still have a few more, like you said, the Open Road, which just came out recently. A King Alone and Hill. King Alone. Mm-hmm. Um, both of the, all three of those other ones are from NYRB. So and, and uh, Occupation Journal is also out recently from uh, Archipelago. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that one, and I haven't read A King Alone, but I loved Hill. Yeah, I think that one you appeals to me. Really love Hill. I you will probably love all of them to a, one degree or another, but Hill mm-hmm. was. It's kind of like this one. It's about the place and it's a little bit, you know, you you feel like you're entering one world because it feels like other books you've read. And then all of a sudden it's, yeah. <laughs> it's something else. Well, I know our friend Frances is a huge Jono fan, so I'm sure she would have recommendations for us and for anybody else mm-hmm. on where to go next. But it kind of does seem like with him, you can't really go wrong and, and everyone will be something that will be a work that you'll get something out of. Yeah. Well, Paul, it's nice. I'm glad we talk about these things. It is crazy how much more I get out of them when we do this. It's really, really pleasant, and I, I hope it helps others too. But I guess if not, they could have turned the episode off, you know, what, a half hour ago? That's right. <laughs> they might have, but I just enjoyed uh, talking to you about it anyway. And like you said, I was a little nervous about exactly not – there's plenty to talk about, but how to form so co- some coherent thoughts from these books. And as always, when I talk to you – it just comes naturally. So Some things yeah. Come out. yeah. And I've appreciated your insights. They've, they've enriched yeah. my readings. Yeah, me too. Well, in closing listeners, please remember the summer book club voting uh, over on Twitter. And I hope you join us. I really do. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, even if there's just one of you who joins, that'll be fun. And I guess if just Paul and me, we just had a good time talking about books that (laughs) I don't know if anyone else read or joined us on. And that was, that was great. Uh, But we do think it would be a lot of fun. Um, And then also the newsletter, Uh, sign up for the newsletter if you're interested, because again, that's probably where a lot of our uh, show notes and just kind of thoughts on what's coming up and what we've been doing. Uh, We're not going to make them long and we're going to put them out with the episodes. It's not Mm -hmm. like you're going to get a newsletter from us every day. We're not trying to inundate you. Um, But I think that that might be a nice thing to to sign up for. And look forward to seeing you wherever we see you, though, listeners. And uh, Paul, you too. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. 
you can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time. Thank you.